From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, good friend and producer, Craig Williams. So, Craig, how are you? I'm already tired, so, uh, (laughs) yeah, no, we are out here live uh well not live we are live right now yes. <laughs> but we are here in anaheim together uh for the d23 expo and as of this being up uh we're either getting in line for the madness that awaits or uh or we're already right in the thick of it so <laughs> tired yes yeah it's been been a long couple of days for everyone on the Diz team but we're excited Absolutely. I cannot wait for it. Um, It's, you know, it it felt like this has been on the calendar now for over a year. Mm -hmm. So it's all been, everything's been leading up to this right now. So, and finally here, uh, I can't be more excited to see the panels, uh, find out what surprises are going to happen, meet a bunch of great people along the way. So just can't cannot wait yeah i know you're waiting for that big announcement of guardians of the galaxy being over in epcot's uh, future world we'll see <laughs> we'll see what happens yeah yeah so um yeah so uh yeah so craig is in in my kingdom this time so over mm-hmm. here in disneyland so we're going to so we're going to be talking about uh, Disneyland today. Um, Craig and I are going to be bringing you another installment of our series, Disneyland, Disney Neverland, the Disney that never was. And um, we just thought it would be fun to talk about a land that was conceived at various times as an extension of Frontierland. Um, it was considered to be its own separate land, and then even as a second gate for Disneyland. So let's hop into our Carousel of Progress time machine and spin back to the Disneyland of the early 1970s. Now, the last attraction to be added to Disneyland were two e-ticket attractions. And that was, of course, was back in the 60s. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean in 1967 and the Haunted Mansion in 1969 in New Orleans Square. Of course, New Orleans Square was Walt's final contribution to his beloved park. And New Orleans Square was originally planned as an extension of Frontierland, but as plans progressed, it became its own land. And the construction of New Orleans Square um, magnified a growing problem with Frontierland. As we discussed in episode 31, when Disneyland opened, Americans were fascinated with the stylized versions of the Old West. And this is exemplified in the popularity of Davy Crockett, The Lone Ranger, and many other popular television shows and films of that era. But by the 1970s, the public's interest in the American frontier genre had faded. Uh, many of Frontierland's original attractions, such as the uh, pack mules and Conestoga wagons, were long gone. 
um, the largest attraction, the Mind Train Through Nature's Wonderland, it was once one of Disneyland's most popular attractions, but it was no longer a guest favorite. Frontierland had become a problem that needed fixing. And for Walt Disney, Frontierland represented the American optimism of the pioneers moving out west to lead lives of promise and reaching their dreams. And that was the plan Imagineer Tony Baxter and his team conceived, an ambitious expansion of Frontierland. In episode 31, we talked about the Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, so let's travel forward to 1976 when the United States was celebrating its bicentennial. Now, construction of Big Thunder Mountain is underway on the edge of Disneyland's Frontierland. Big Thunder Mountain was meant to be the gateway to a new expansion of Frontierland. The miners who struck it rich uh, deep in the motherlode of Thunder Mountain won't be staying long in the tiny town of Frontierland. They'll be packing up their wagons to seek their fortune in the California gold rush, and eventually they'll reach Discovery Bay. And Discovery Bay was a massive project, and it was designed by a team including Tom Sherman, Harper Goff, Colin Campbell, Bob McDonald, Rick Harper, Fred Hope Jr., Steve Kirk, Gary Goddard, and led by Imagineer Tony Baxter. It was designed for the northern edge of the Rivers of America, where Big Thunder Ranch and the festival area were recently located, as well as much of the surrounding land and backstage area. Discovery Bay was designed to resemble the city of San Francisco in the 1860s to 1880s, when the city was called the Paris of the West. Of course, there was a combination of reality and fantasy in this version of San Francisco. Here is a place where gold has drawn international travelers, explorers, thinkers, and designers to create a gold and bronze land of marvelous architecture, cultural melding, and technological marvels. Um, the aesthetics of this land was the precursor of steampunk. And Craig, for our listeners who aren't familiar with this, um, could you tell them what, what is steampunk? Yeah, so steampunk is a type of style that mixes uh, a lot of like Victorian fashion, but then blends it up with um, a, a lot of kind of turn of the century uh, type machinery style. So uh, you know, gears, bolts, um, heavy you know, heavy load lifting. Right when when all these machines were starting to really be built and relied upon. Um, back back in the day so it kind of mashes up the two styles completely and uh you know heavy uses of um bronze browns grays it's it's very bleak but also very beautiful at the same time which see that's where this all just you know as we'll get into the description more and more it, it really in my head I don't see how, even though even though they had the storyline with going from Frontierland to there, it would have been like just two complete day and night styles mm -hmm. between the two. So it would have been interesting to see how they would have tried to blend the two to to really make it cross over. Like, was there a time where 
it may have been possible that people working at Big Thunder Mountain Railroad would have had some steampunk added to their costumes. Uh, could have been very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and this was really seen because of what steampunk was. This was going to be a transition land yeah. between Frontierland and Fantasyland. So it was the melding of um, fantasy yeah. and reality, definitely. So. Now, the story of Discovery Bay was associated with the original story of Big Thunder Mountain Railroad. And this is the story that was printed in a 1992 issue of Disney News. The highly imaginative tale includes the legend of a young inventor named Jason Chandler, who lived in a town called International Village during the peak gold rush years in the Big Thunder region circa 1849. According to the Chronicles, the young inventor devised a drilling machine with the capability of boring into the very heart of Big Thunder Mountain. There, the veins of gold ran so deep it was rumored they could produce a mother load that would bring a man enough wealth to last a hundred lifetimes and more. But a cave-in occurred on Big Thunder, burying 26 miners alive. They would have drawn their last breath then and there, had it not been for the inventor and his laughable drilling machine. He burrowed down into the earth's core, rescuing the miners from certain death. It should have been a moment of joy and celebration, but as the men scrambled to the arms of safety... A massive earthquake shook the ground, and a cavernous maw opened up, swallowing the inventor and his machine whole. The miners, as well as the citizens of the village, struggled day and night against the mountain, trying to dig the young man from his living tomb. But they never saw him or another nugget of gold again. Big Thunder had taken its vengeance not only on the miners, but on their wealth as well. The mountain had gone bust, and it became just a matter of time before only ghosts resided there. Now, according to the story, unbeknownst to the townspeople, Jason Chandler survived this incident. But knowing the wealth of gold could be easily abused, he chose to use the gold to fund research for any inventor whose odd ideas had been turned down by everyone else. He established a new home on the California coast near San Francisco called Discovery Bay. One of the first actions Jason Chandler did was to meet with Ned Land, and he was the sailor portrayed by Kirk Douglas in the Disney film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea to locate and salvage the Nautilus from its watery grave. Now, on October 12, 1976, Disney released in a memo this description of Discovery Bay. Along the rivers of America, in the northern portion of Frontierland, lies Discovery Bay. Having as its roots a San Francisco of the 1850s to 1880s, the theme would bring to life a time and place that climaxed an age of discovery and expansion. Discovery Bay would reflect the influx of opportunists, dreamers, and adventurers that poured into this cultural melting pot after the discovery of gold. The railroad link with the East had brought with the beginnings of culture and luxury, and the area was now earning its reputation as a city of myths and eccentricities. With these parameters established, a western port city would be a logical and exciting addition to Frontierland. Such a debarkation point would be a natural for many of our exciting show concepts, as well as some exciting new ones. 
the flexibility of this once-only place and time can best be demonstrated through brief sketches of some attraction possibilities. The area would fan out around a bay inlet from the rivers of America, standing on a rock, rock outcropping on the old lighthouse keynotes the styling for this age of mechanical marvels. Here the Columbia would dock, as well as several set-piece crafts, giving a feeling of international adventure to this frontier port. Along the docks would be a traditional Chinatown. This version would recreate a Chinese settlement in the days of the western frontier, with its exotic food dishes, merchandise, and an unusual attraction called the fireworks factories. factory. Here, guests could test their marksmanship, bursting skyrockets, pinwheels, and various firecrackers as they move through a whimsical assembly line. In another corner, a group of opportunists, opportunists have set up shop. Among the promises and allures offered are those of a French aerial explorer. He promises brave adventurers a trip aboard a fantastic flying machine to an island of paradise located at the top of the world. With this setup, we could effectively integrate a very exciting show that has been difficult to fit into the logic of the park's exciting realms. This island at the top of the world adventure and several others are not really fairy tales for fantasy land, nor backwood frontier adventures, but they do date from the late 19th century and could use a Discovery Bay location as a debarkation point for adventure. Another example, the motion picture 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea has its beginning in exactly this type of place. Perhaps a new version of the old Disneyland attraction could be developed. Guests might view the workings of the Nautilus and Nemo's secrets before dining in an undersea grand salon. A time machine or dimensional adventure also works nicely with this 19th century port, so often the period of time depicted in the writings of Verne and Wells. Returning now to the streets of Discovery Bay, the facades might include elaborate gaming halls with crystal chandeliers and plush interiors, while the shop windows could reflect the runaway inflation of the golden economy. Eggs at $18 a dozen, room and board $100 a day, a parody of today's economic situation. Actual shops might include the model works, featuring Disney-oriented scale reproductions and a scientific supplies office. At the other end of town would be a railroad station in the site of Discovery Bay's most unusual attractions. Dominating this area is the Tower, a wild structure that takes guests down a dizzy spiral and into a giant magnetic structure where the forces of magnetism are demonstrated in a most exciting manner. Also part of this sector is the Great Western Balloon Ascent and Professor Marvel's Gallery, a fascinating visit with the foremost collector of the exotic, weird, and whimsical from all over the world. The cornerstone of this development would be the completion of Big Thunder Railroad. This will allow access to the new area and provide a glimpse of the gold rush fever that paved the way to the land of adventurers and dreamers, Discovery Bay Frontierland. So, Craig, since we've taken our Carousel of Progress time machine to 1976, let's say we explore Discovery Bay with our listeners. Yeah, let's do it. So I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so this 
Disneyland guests would follow the trail alongside Big Thunder Mountain, drawn by the weenie of Discovery Bay. This would be a lighthouse at the inlet of the Rivers of America. And at one time during the design process, there was thought of this lighthouse being of the same design as the lighthouse for the 1977 film Pete's Dragon. And this lighthouse would house a shop and be themed with a small maritime display. Now, near the lighthouse, the sailing ship Columbia would be docked at a port full of crates and nets, which upon further investigation would turn out to be a children's play area. And a gangplank would allow guests to board the Columbia to explore the ship. And in this concept, the Columbia would be permanently docked. However, um, there would also be a number of smaller ships um, that would be docked in the port. And at other times, it was discussed that the Columbia might sail the rivers of America from the Discovery Bay dock, and the Mark Twain would continue to sail from the Frontierland dock. Now, the first buildings we would encounter would be part of a small Chinatown with a Chinese restaurant, um, Appleseed Cider Mill, which would be a counter-service restaurant, and the Fireworks Factory Shooting Gallery. So rather than having the Cowboys and um, gravestones to aim at, as they do in the Frontierland Shooting Gallery, guests would shoot at a variety of fireworks, including fireworks, gunpowder, rockets, and pinwheels, which would ignite and spark and spin and explode when hit. Um, later, Discovery Bay concept designs had the fireworks factories a dark ride in which guests would launch pinwheels, sparklers, and firecrackers as they traveled along the factory's assembly line. Now, docked out in the rivers of America, guests would see the 200-foot-long recreation of the copper-hulled Nautilus submarine. And some designs had the submarine docked out at Tom Sawyer Island. And at the water's edge, guests would ascend down a spiral staircase and tour some of the most famous areas of the ship, including the control room, the cruise quarters, Captain Nemo's salon with his pipe organ, and and the organ from the Disney film is ironically in the ballroom scene at uh, Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. And this attraction varied from being a fine dining 300-seat restaurant called Nemo's Grand Salon with stunning underwater views of sea life in the ruins of Atlantis to a Star Tour-style simulator called the Captain Nemo Adventure. Now, today's simulators are standard theme park attractions, but in 1976, they were used primarily for military flight training. And in the attraction's pre-show, an audio-animatronic Captain Nemo would welcome guests aboard the Nautilus and point them toward an experimental submarine capable of holding 150 passengers, designed to look remarkably like a circular theater for a short voyage to Nemo's undersea compound. Now, glass containers on the wall would flood with water, indicating the vessel was submerging, and lanterns would swivel in their housing in response to the angled dive. Large windows would provide views of the undersea life and their mysteries. As guests observed fish and Nemo's men cultivating the seabed farm, an alarm would sound, and an enemy ship had been spotted firing on Nemo's experimental submarine. Now, Captain Nemo would give the order to accelerate to ramming speed. The theater would rock violently as the sub tore through the hull of the attacking warship. Nemo would turn the sub just in time to see the warship's wreckage sinking beneath the waves. 
Unfortunately, Nemo's sub also sustained damage and would lurch out of control towards the bottom of the sea to depths far deeper than what the sub was designed for. Guests would hear the hull creak as the pressure increased on the sub, and emergency lights would flicker on. Eventually, Captain Nemo and his stalwart crew would regain the control of the sub and set sail for the home port, and guests would breathe a sigh of relief. But when at sea, expect the unexpected. As the sub begins its journey home, it's attacked by a giant squid, whose great strength begins to tear apart the hull of the small submarine. A crew member activates an electrical discharge which sends blue sparks throughout the interior of the sub in an attempt to force the squid to release the sub, but the effort fails. Captain Nemo informs the guests that the only way to defeat the giant squid is to perform a rapid ascent to the surface. The resulting rapid change in pressure would force the squid to release its hold on the submarine and retreat to the depths of the sea. This maneuver works, but not before the squid tears open an overhead hatch and reaches inside the submarine with its giant tentacles. Now, doesn't this attraction sound amazing? <laughs> Absolutely does. No, and uh, I just, something like this, just based on what it sounds like, even to this day, I, I can totally see this being a complete e-ticket attraction. Um, there's still... Uh, a lot of love for 20,000 leagues under the sea in that style. I mean, uh, it's, you know, part of Tokyo Disney sea has that, the Jules Verne esque, um, what is it? Mysterious Island there or something yes. along. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so clearly there is, there, there's a want to have 20,000 under leagues under the sea and Nautilus in there it just it, it would have been so cool yeah they also in, in tokyo disney sea they had an attraction called um storm rider mm-hmm. that had some of these elements in here and it, it recently has been rethemed to um a nemo uh, finding nemo uh, finding yeah. nemo but um see they kept it nemo though <laughs> yes they did <laughs> but um you know and and even by modern standards you're right craig this would be an incredible adventure um however back in 1976 uh, this would have been an incredible challenge to design and construct yeah and I'm, i mean maybe that had some issues with it too it's it's one thing to to blue sky come up with the great idea and even start to work on the uh the engineering aspects of it and then another thing to actually really put it into play and make it come to life Mm -hmm. so yeah yeah but i think it would have held up well and it was so different from disneyland's submarine voyage at the time i think they easily could have had Uh, two submarine voyages absolutely yeah. yeah Now, to the right of the firework factory, we'd see an elaborate circus-style tent and circus wagons belonging to Professor Marvel's gallery. This was described as a fascinating visit with the foremost collector of the exotic, weird, and whimsical from all over the world. A tent show of mystery and delights. A carousel of magic and wonder. This description sounds a bit familiar. It's because this is very similar to Disney legend and Imagineer Rolly Crump's concept for the Museum of the Weird, a pre-show for Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. Uh, And if you want to 
find out more about that, I recommend uh, picking up one of the copies of uh, Seekers of the Weird, mm-hmm. the uh, Marvel comic book that came out that um, when it kind of took the idea and made an original story out of it. So it's uh, it's a cool little series to have, and you can get it in a nice hardback book, and it's good collectible. Yeah. Actually, that's what I have. I have yeah. a hardback version of it. Now, now, guests would enter through a sideshow wagon and step into a revolving theater, and this would be similar to the Carousel of Progress that had recently been transported from Disneyland to Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Our host is Professor Marble, Marvel, <laughs> possibly based on the character from The Wizard of Oz, um, an over-the-top showman very much like P.T. Barnum, who is an inventor and explorer. In this audio animatronic show, the professor would show off all sorts of oddities and creatures he has collected in his travels and demonstrate his experiments and inventions, and all of this would have been set to music. Now, guests would most likely be entranced by the professor's faithful pet dragon, which sits on his shoulder throughout the professor's presentation. Nearby would be the San Francisco Chowder House, based on San Francisco's Cliff House that was built in 1896 and destroyed by fire in 1907. And a video arcade named the Energy Factory, themed with luxurious Victorian decor and chandeliers. Next to this would be the Spark Gap Electric Loop Roller Coaster, which was to be the power plant of Discovery Bay. This was a family coaster that would wrap around huge gold towers pulsing with Tesla coil electrical sparks. Now, future expansion plans would have included the first looping roller coaster built by Disney named either the Tower or the Spiral. One design would have had the vehicles being drawn up a spiral lift hill via magnetism by a powerful humming and throbbing magnet before a reversed magnetic polarity sent it free-falling backwards down a new path through a corkscrew. Now, in my, some of my source material had some conflicts. Mm-hmm. They had these two roller coasters that I described, some of them had them as one roller coaster that went through several concepts. Other source material had these as two separate roller coasters. Yeah. Well, and I believe if I can remember from um, the couple, I don't remember what year it was, but at destination D Tony Baxter did a presentation on discovery Bay. And I remember him talking about one of the roller coasters was going to make use of, um, using linear, uh, induction motors. Mm -hmm. So for it, so I wonder, I wonder what that plays into with these two, or if it was just the one or what, Mm -hmm. but, um, either way, they all sound like like great roller coasters at that um you know it's i i don't know what i would think if i saw a looping roller coaster inside disneyland it just Mm -hmm. it would seem so odd i mean it felt out of place at at um hollywood studios when rock and roller coaster came in and is it disneyland paris doesn't their space mountain have a loop yes it does yeah and we will (laughs) and we will and there's probably a reason for that we'll get to that in a minute in a little while, anyway. Um, continuing past the roller coaster, along a grassy hill, we would have come upon the Western Balloon Ascent. This would be similar to the Skyway, 
um, guests would ride in a suspended in suspended hot air balloons over Discovery Bay to the nearby Dumbo Circus Land, which was a planned expansion for Fantasyland, and this would serve as a link between Fantasyland and Discovery Bay. Now, moving away from the waterfront into the interior of Discovery Bay is where guests would find shops selling artisan crafts, scientific supplies, and scale model figurines of Disneyland attractions. And these shops would be lavishly decorated and themed in the style of Victorian high society, with elaborate building facades, plush chase lounges, and crystal chandeliers. Dominating the skyline of Discovery Bay would be a giant hangar housing the airship Hyperion. This was to have been an attraction based on the 1974 film The Island at the Top of the World, which would be uh, the grand entrance to the signature attraction of the land. At times, the attraction was named The Island at the Top of the World. Other times, it was the Hyperion Flight. And it was described as a trip aboard a fantastic flying machine to an island of paradise located at the top of the world. And Tony Baxter described this attraction as a flight on an aerial suspended monorail system that looks like a dirigible. Now, guests would enter the mechanical hangar housing the Hyperion airship and and the queue for the attraction and then board their smaller airships to lift off on a 20-minute flight to the Arctic wilderness, which is inhabited by audio-animatronic wildlife. And as the journey begins, a magnificent sunset would give way to darkness and then the glowing, shimmering green and purple shades of the northern lights. Turbulence would force our airship to fly low over the ocean and icebergs before heading over land where guests would see polar bears, reindeer, walruses, whales, and a snow leopard in their journey northward. Increasingly unstable weather, of course, would cause our airship to seek shelter and eventually pass through a narrow crack in an ice wall. And the airship passengers would emerge into a silent frozen labyrinth with crystalline walls. Could this be the fabled lost city of Astrogard? As we continued, we'd see an ancient temple constructed of ice and whalebone. This would be to confirm that this is our gateway to the legendary island at the top of the world. As our flight continued, we'd discover a beautiful temperate lush garden paradise populated by griffins, woolly mammoths, dodos, and winged horses. And against the advice of the crew, the captain would attempt to capture one of these creatures. However, air turbulence would worsen into a storm, throwing around the airship and its passengers. And other concepts for the attraction included a volcanic eruption causing the airship to fly wildly out of control. The captain would eventually regain control of the airship and sail her through a cloud bank to reveal the twinkling lights of Discovery Bay below. And as they disembarked, passengers would learn that the captain had been successful in capturing one of the fabulous creatures from Astrogard. No doubt a photo opportunity. (laughs) Yeah, oh, absolutely. (laughs) Now, everything about the uh, Hyperion, I'm sure it would have been grand and like the absolute 
end all of e-ticket attractions at the time. So I remember at the at Destination D when they did that, Tony Baxter um, spent a lot of time focusing on um, Hyperion itself. And uh, even went as far as to like, they, they showcased what the ride track was going to be in detail all the way around. Um, they even, they got to the point where they had uh, an actor, I don't know who it was, but he basically read very similar description is what I you just read us kind of like in a an exciting narrative way to that I guess they were using as proposals and stuff so it it just it would have been absolutely incredible I understand um you know that island of the top of the world not really doing so well financially uh definitely probably drove an axe through all of this but um I, you know, that's how it goes. I tried to watch that movie once when it was on the treasures from the Disney vault and I turned it off after like 10 minutes. It's tough to get through the special effects, even for that era were, um, not up to par with even special effects of past Disney films, like 20,000 leagues under the sea and treasure Island. (laughs) So yeah, it's a tough one to get through. So, um, now, now, um, there were plans to reroute the Disneyland Railroad, so it would include Discovery Bay. A new Discovery Bay station was planned, and after leaving this station, the train would cross the waters of the bay itself on a rickety 19th century-style wooden bridge. There were even plans for the railroad track to be extended in a figure eight around the perimeter of the land. Now, guests would pass beneath the railroad, as they do now from Mickey's Toontown, to the next major attraction. Beyond the Hyperion Hangar would loom a dormant volcanic mountain with bubbling waterfalls. This would be another attraction, this one based on H.G. Wells' book, The Time Machine. The attraction was alternately called The Voyage Through Time, the Lost World, Journey Through Time, and Mythia Land of the Legends. I think there were even other titles for it. Wow. It went through a lot. (laughs) This would be an indoor-outdoor boat ride transporting guests through a portal through time to visit audio-animatronic lost civilizations all the way back to the beginning of time. Now, similar to the island at the top of the world attraction, guests would have encountered mythical creatures such as dragons, centaurs, and unicorns, along with dinosaurs and cavemen similar to the ones created by Disney for the Ford Magic Skyway attraction at the 1964-65 New York World's Fair. One has to assume that if both the island at the top of the world and this attraction were built, the mythological section would have been confined to just one attraction. Mm-hmm. This attraction went through many concept changes. Some versions included a cast member guide and some did not. Some versions included a lo- log flume style drops. And at one time it was also conceived as a raft ride. And to me, it actually sounds like what people thought was going to happen with uh, the Navi River journey. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that as well, too, because, you know, before we got in there, we're like, well, are you going to go outside and see what Pandora's like in the daytime? Then inside, see mm-hmm. bioles- bioluminescence, all the creatures, stuff like that. So um, who knows? Maybe maybe they kind of were riding that, mm-hmm. uh, this old concept when they were thinking about what to do with that attraction. They might have been. And even it sounds like some of the concepts for the mythological area of Animal Kingdom. Yeah, Originally, yeah. the Beastly Kingdom. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, 
Jules Verne, author of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Island at the Top of the World, and the inspiration for many of Discovery Bay attractions, would have a statue in the middle of Discovery Bay's town square. If Discovery Bay had been built, the Rivers of America would have had four shores, each representing a different story. The storied backwoods of Critter Country, then New Orleans Square, then the old west of Frontierland, and finally the retro-futuristic San Francisco named Discovery Bay. Discovery Bay was officially announced in October 1976, and a beautiful 120th scale model of both Discovery Bay and Dumbo Circus Land were put on display in the preview center on Main Street, USA. And I, I remember seeing these models. Oh, yeah. yeah, and they were beautiful. I have to imagine. Yeah, and um, today that shop is the, is the Disney Showcase um, shop. Guests were in awe of the spectacle of these two additions to Disneyland. And um, with, within Imagineering, there was great enthusiasm for the Discovery Bay project, primarily driven by Tony Baxter and Tom Sherman, who was a fan of Walt Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. In fact, there was so much enthusiasm, a five-minute-long television pilot for a proposed new show, The Discovery Bay Chronicles, was produced, reportedly financed by Tom Sherman. So doesn't Discovery Bay sound fabulous? <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, I I would have loved for it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, just think, it's it, everything would be different. But Star Wars Land probably wouldn't even be on the table for being inside Disneyland if Discovery Bay was there. It just it, it could have changed the entire park completely. Mm-hmm. I think it would have cha- it would have changed the park, and I think it even could have been uh, it would have been the first. I don't know, totally, I think, um, I, I don't know, thematic land yeah. where you, you just were totally transported. But uh, but also, uh, I think it could have even been a basis for other parks. Yeah. We could have, that would have been the first land that maybe we saw recreated, um, you know, beyond the original four realms, original yeah. four realms. No, and at park. the end of the day, too, I just think about it with the concept and everything, and of any like even though yeah it could have been recreated in other parks to me every the way it sounds like this would have fit into disneyland perfectly Mm -hmm. like it just would have blended right in no one would have thought anything of it no so yeah i agree so so with all this enthusiasm from park guests seeing the model and wet imagineering over the project why why is it a part of our disney neverland and the reasons are many um one of Disney Park guests' frustration is that all new attractions must be tied to an intellectual property or IP, which would be an animated or live-action film, because there is already a built-in fan base for the attraction. Even existing original attractions, such as the Haunted Mansion and Pirates of the Caribbean, have had films created based on those attractions and the pirates of the caribbean and disneyland submarine voyage storylines have been changed to better match the film franchises at the expense of the attractions original storylines oh we we just saw that too with our tower of terror yeah yeah being rethemed to guardians of the galaxy um in the 1970s disney did not operate this way 
as can be seen with attractions like the Country Bear Jamboree, Space Mountain, and Big Thunder Mountain. However, one of the big selling points for Discovery Bay, and Craig, you were alluding to this, was its connection to the release of Disney's live-action film, The Island at the Top of the World. Unfortunately, the film opened to poor reviews and was a box office failure. This might not have been enough to cancel the whole um, Discovery Bay project, but Disney executives were not enthused to have a box office failure linked to the e-ticket attraction for the land. Which it's kind of funny to, um, I you know, while the movie might have been a failure, uh, it also could have eventually gave the movie legs mm-hmm. if it would have just been created on it. So, yeah, the, the movie's going to make most of its money in the box office, but like it could have revitalized that completely. Right. So um, it, it's a tough call on that, but the movie's still terrible. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it's it funny. It could have been the Tron of its time also, because look at how Tron was a box office failure, yeah. the original one. Then it became a cult you know sort of classic it got a second film now there's all the rumors of a third one now there's the tron roller coaster in shanghai we will find out here at d23 expo if rumors are true about it being constructed in any of our north american parks um so it could have been something like that where maybe then if the attraction had been popular could they have remade the film i I think the the film itself i'm sure there is a select group of disney fans that believe it is a cult classic obviously nowhere on the level of tron um but i'm i'm sure they exist out there and who knows maybe a sequel would have happened once technology was better and it really drew people in yeah yeah maybe so Another reason for Discovery Bay not being given the green light was due to Disney moving forward on two other major projects at the end of the 1970s, Walt Disney World's Epcot Center and Tokyo Disneyland. All available resources of Walt Disney Productions were diverted to these projects. With these two massive projects and the box office failure at the island at the top of the world, it was easy for Disney executives to shelve Discovery Bay. As Tony Baxter commented, instead of executives saying, we did a bad Jules Verne movie, they said, well, people don't want to see Jules Verne movies. It's funny, I think if they had built Discovery Bay at Disneyland, I think we would have seen Discovery Bay at Tokyo Disneyland. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably. Another reason for Discovery Bay not being built? came just one year after the announcement of Discovery Bay with the debut of two films, Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which ushered in a new era of science fiction fantasy in popular culture. This led to Disney entering into a partnership with George Lucas to open Star Wars and Indiana Jones-themed attractions in the Disney parks. These films were much more adventurous and modern than Discovery Bay's source material, which meant they were more guaranteed to be popular and profitable for Disney. It has been said that good ideas never die at Wed Imagineering, and that has been somewhat true for Discovery Bay. In 1985, the TV pilot Discovery Bay Chronicles was shown at the media event for Disneyland's 30th anniversary. 
the concept for Discovery Bay was expanded into a full second gate for Disneyland. However, when Michael Eisner examined the plans, he was put off by the old source material of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the financial failure of the film The Island at the Top of the World. Instead, Eisner redirected Imagineering's resources to the construction of Splash Mountain, an attraction his 14-year-old son chose as his favorite attraction concept proposed by the Imagineers. Discovery Bay was floated again in 1998, but nothing came of it. Discovery Bay would also play a part in Port Disney, the ocean-themed Discovery um, ocean-themed Disney park planned for Long Beach, California, where Captain Nemo's presence was expanded into a full Volcania miniland. Due to issues with government regulations and approvals, um, Port Disney plans were dropped in favor of building Disney's California Adventure. I talk more about Port Disney in my 60 Years of Disneyland series on the Dis Unplugged podcast Disneyland edition. Still, Good ideas never truly go away at Wet Imagineering, and elements of Discovery Bay did manage to be incorporated into Disney parks around the world. Of course, Big Thunder Mountain opened at Disneyland in 1979, which was meant to introduce guests to the Discovery Bay storyline. Disneyland's Big Thunder Mountain has the hoodoo formations and forest setting, which had been designed to connect the fantasy-themed areas of Discovery Bay and Fantasyland with Frontierland. All other Big Thunder Mountains and Disney parks are more expansive and based on the desert-surrounded Monument Valley. Tony Baxter's original concept for Epcot Center's The Land Pavilion set the pavilion inside a giant tower made of seven glass crystals, similar to conceptual art for Discovery Bay. As a signature attraction, Tony planned a suspended hot air balloon ride through the various habitats of the world, similar to Discovery Bay's Western Balloon Ascent attraction. When the land sponsor changed the craft's foods, that company requested the pavilion de-emphasize habitats and focus on food, nutrition, and farming. So Tony Baxter was reassigned to the pavilion next door, sponsored by Kodak. Kodak wanted something imaginative for their pavilion, so Tony recast Discovery Bay's Professor Marvel and his pet Dragon as Dreamfinder and Figment to lead guests on a journey through creativity and imagination. Which I, I think this is like one good oh, change that did come uh, from uh, Discovery Bay not coming to fruition because like the one thing i thought of when we were reading through this and thinking about it if if it would have actually been built in discovery bay when that terrible oz movie came out a few years ago the sam raimi one they could have easily said oh no we're gonna use this as a movie tie-in <laughs> and and make it show in the wizard for that so thank goodness we just got figment and Dreamfinder yes, out of it definitely <laughs> yes that was a very positive um, contribution to Epcot Center. Let's hope we hear he's making a, a resurgence at, during the D23X. I think that's what we're all hoping for, but we're expecting the worst. Yes, we are inside and out. Um, 
In the early 1990s, Tony Baxter was assigned as executive producer of Euro Disneyland, now Disneyland Paris. Many consider this to be the most beautiful, detailed, and creative of all the Disney castle parks. Tony replaced Tomorrowland with Discoveryland and themed it to a fantasy version of the future as envisioned by the great thinkers and visionaries like Jules Verne and Leonardo da Vinci. This is a steampunk version of Tomorrowland in copper and brown hues rather than the traditional white, silver, and blue Tomorrowland color palette, and it has lagoons, fantasy illusions, organic rockwork, and the airship Hyperion docked and floating above the land. There is also a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea walkthrough originally designed for Discovery Bay. Expansion plans once included Discovery Bay's Spark Gap Coaster. Due to the success of Disneyland Paris's Discoveryland, Tomorrowland at Walt Disney World was going to be rethemed as Discoveryland, but the budget was tightened and the timekeeper was the only realization of that plan. And that's sad because the timekeeper was amazing. Um, you know, since they've. Since they got rid of that and added Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor, it just, it's never been the same. I know people love Monsters, Inc. They think it's funny. Uh, Timekeeper was such a great 360 show. It, it was. was just awesome. And the, the nice having uh, Robin Williams in the parks in that capacity. And uh, uh, Rhea Perlman is mm-hmm. 9-I-2. It was just such a great attraction. It was, it was an excellent attraction. And it fit better thematically. Into Tomorrowland and Monsters Inc. Laugh Floor. Yep. Now, when Tokyo Disney Sea opened in 2001, guests were thrilled to see a full recreation of some of Discovery Bay's ideas. Mysterious Island, an entire land themed around Captain Nemo's secret lair, and Port Discovery, a futuristic, slightly steampunk marina of the future. Now, the park's signature central land, Mysterious Island, is based on the Jules Verne's novel, and is, it's fully contained within a collapsed volcanic caldera of the 189-foot-tall Mount Prometheus. And within this land is an entirely new 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction and the journey to the center of the Earth dark ride. And I've been on both of these, mm-hmm. and they are both incredible. Yeah, no, I've watched videos of the Journey to the Center of the Earth uh, attraction, and it's. I, I will get out to Tokyo Disney Sea one day, and I, I will be on everything. <laughs> so, yeah. it, yes, and I'll be there with the Diz in October. Very lucky. Yes. Now, outside of Mysterious Island stands Fortress Explorations, and this is a tall Renaissance-style palace, which is the centuries-old headquarters for the Society of Explorers and Adventurers, or SCA, which has added the Jason Chandler character into its ranks. At the 2016 D23 Destination D event, it was announced the SCA would be a continuity thread throughout many Disney parks and attractions. And we've seen that with um, the the retheming of the Jungle Cruise Mm -hmm. and Skipper's Canteen. And so we're, we're seeing that more and more. And what did Disneyland do with the land set aside for Discovery Bay? 
Well, every time the Walt Disney Studios was about to release a big-budget film, rumors began that a land based on the film was being developed for the Discovery Bay area. Oh, there you go. Um, Craig, when Oz the Great and Powerful was in production, there were rumors of the land becoming the Emerald City in the Land of Oz, with a carnival and Auntie M's farm serving as the transition from Frontierland. That would have been terrible. <laughs> the film The Lone Ranger was also rumored as a themed expansion for Frontierland. Terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Both films failed to perform at the box office, so any thoughts of themed lands or attractions based on those films were put to rest. And that's a shame, because I really was looking forward to that uh, new Johnny Depp Tonto animatronic that would have just stood <laughs> in in the middle of Frontierland. Well, maybe we would have seen um, Thunder Mesa come back, but themed to the Lone Ranger. Oh, perfect. <laughs> So the land of Discovery Bay became Big Thunder Ranch in 1986, where the horses that worked on Main Street USA could rest and relax, and children of all ages could delight in petting sheep and goats and encounter other farm animals. Turkeys who had received Thanksgiving presidential pardons also found a home at Big Thunder Ranch. Attached to the ranch was one of the favorite Disneyland restaurants, the Big Thunder Barbecue. I miss this place. Um, behind the ranch was an outdoor theater originally built for the Hunchback of Notre Dame show, and later was the Big Thunder Ranch Festival area, which hosted seasonal and holiday themed shows and elaborate decorations. Um, the Big Thunder Ranch area closed in 2016 to make way for a new fantasy themed land, but this is based on Star Wars. I miss Big Thunder Ranch. So being there at Halloween mm -hmm. was just my absolute favorite time with all the 1920s Halloween decorations just scattered throughout there. It was such a great area. It was. It was beautiful. And, um, yeah, that became really the, the, the cultural festival area yeah. for Disneyland. And they would um, decorate it beautifully. Oh. And, it, and it, they had a lot of children's activities there, um, a lot of character meet and greets. A, a terrible corny western show that you could watch and not not even corny in a, in a good sense but that you could watch as you enjoyed your barbecue or you can eat oh, yeah. barbecue at big thunder ranch oh no I, I love the show yeah. it's it was the hoopty do of out here yeah well no, i wouldn't go that far but it was a it was a a couple that would play music and then woody and jesse and all that yeah. would come out and, and all that but anyway um, so would, uh, would Discovery Bay have been a good addition to Disneyland? Yeah, Craig, I think we both think it would have oh, yeah. been. No, I 100% agree. I, um, how many times did you say no good idea ever dies? So maybe one day. Maybe. You never know. Uh, again, I think it could be expanded and be a third gate yeah. somewhere or be another gate at, um, at Walt Disney World. Yeah. And if Discovery Bay had been built, Disney would have been the leader in the steampunk phenomenon. They could have owned it. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now, now, do you think, though, Discovery Bay in modern times could stand up next to a Star Wars themed land? I mean, it, it's tough with Disneyland because with Disneyland, there's so much um, emotional attachment to everything that is here that I think it actually could have stood up next to a, a Star Wars land. Like, yeah, as much as I miss Big Thunder Ranch, and you do as well, um, 
you know, it wasn't really a big area that was utilized properly. Mm -hmm. So it, it makes sense that Disney needed to put something bigger and better there. But at the same time, too, if this would have opened up in the 70s and 80s um, time period there, it, you know, people would have just uh, that nostalgia would have been attached instantly mm -hmm. um, and it would have became a part. And I mean, again, Disneyland would have had a problem then when they want to put Star Wars uh, in. If Discovery Bay was added, I don't think they would have been able to to take it out and start over. They would have had to find room in DCA or build a third gate. Yeah, no, I agree. Or somewhere find room over in Tomorrowland. Yeah. <laughs> or, Which still <laughs> makes more sense, but yeah. hey. Yeah, yeah. Now, more recently, there was a plan for Epcot's future world to be rethemed and renamed Discovery Land in an abandoned update known as Project Gemini. But that will be another episode for connecting with Walt's series on Disney Neverland. So, and, and the funny thing is, in, in reading some of the rumors of D23 Expo, dis, the Discovery Land idea for Epcot surfaced. Oh, so um, it, so it'll be interesting. I'm, yeah, no, it's. It, it, I think this is one of those things where we all have some exact ideas about attractions. We know they're going to announce. I think they're going to surprise us with a couple little things here and there, too, that we just didn't see coming. Yeah. Oh, I think so, too. So, Now, several references were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including a couple of books. Um, Tony Baxter, first of the second generation of Walt Disney Imagineers by Tim O'Brien, and The Disneylands That Never Were by Sean Finney. There were some good articles that I found um, on this Um Disney can the best theme park concept it ever had. Here's why by Brian um, Krosnick for Theme Park Tourist. Disneyland Doodlers toy with old idea for new attractions. The Los Angeles Times, September 4th, 1998. And that was an article in the Los Angeles Times talking about um, Disney's plans to build um, Discovery Bay as the second gate. Hmm. Um, there are um, a couple of websites. Uh, well, there was a website that was interesting that Disney Wiki on Discovery Bay, and then you might interview my. You might remember my interview with David Younger. He's the author of Theme Park Design and the Art of Themed Entertainment. We interviewed him on the January first, twenty uh, January twenty um, ninth, twenty seventeen, in um, episode Wall. And he had he and I talked a lot about Discovery Bay. He had a lot of good background information yeah. on it that I. Um, included in this um, in, in this um, episode of Connecting with Walt, but he doesn't have it published anywhere, so he oh. just had a lot of good knowledge and scripts and things like that. Now he's, he's really great, so yeah. check out his book. Uh-huh, and he's writing a second one, <laughs> so we'll probably have him back at some point. Good for him. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so any last thoughts about Discovery Bay? Um, you know what? Maybe we'll get surprised and we'll hear that it is coming. Man, it's not going to. I don't but. think so. But who knows what they might pull from it still. You yeah, never know. No, I, you know, it, it, to me, uh, I've said it, I think, three times now. I feel like it just would have fit perfectly in. I'm glad the concept still made it out. Mm -hmm. um, but there was such a big, bold idea here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, it took only it could have actually latched on and 
and got the uh, the right attention that it needed, it, it could have been something truly spectacular. And um, you know, it, it's and some of the concepts with it, like doing the doing the TV pilot for it. Um, you know, it, it's odd that they did that for that, and then of course, Big Thunder Mountain. Although it's never happened, there was supposed to be a TV show going along with that right. when they updated the story uh, a few years ago. So it's just. Uh, so many things could have changed because of Discovery Bay. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I wish we just could have seen it to really understand what could have been different. Yeah. Yeah. And the model was beautiful. The, the immersiveness of this land would it, have been like something we had never seen before in the 1970s. Yeah. And that's also a good reminder, too. When we see concept art for stuff, when we see models, remember with Disney, any idea can be killed extremely quickly like with this or when disney parks blog officially announced hyperion wharf at disney's uh, at downtown disney and then said construction's going to start immediately it'll be open up by 2015 or 2016 and then that just never happened so you you just don't know when things are going to just immediately go off the table with sometimes no announcement of why yeah yeah that's true true just because it's announced doesn't mean it's going to happen yeah. So, and if you are at um, the D23 Expo over these next few days, I hope you will stop by our Diz booth, exactly. uh, the Dreams Unlimited booth. Um, you can find it in the guidebook and on the um, D23 Expo app under Dreams Unlimited. So you can see where we're at. Yeah. And we will all be out and about bringing you all the latest on the D23 Expo. And we'll be at the Disney parks as well, Disneyland yeah. and uh, Disney California Adventure. I'm sure a good handful of people right now might be listening to this as they're sleeping overnight, waiting <laughs> for whatever big present uh, Friday. So, yeah, they're waiting for live action. So you picked a good time to listen to this if you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, so uh, so be sure you say hello yes. to all of us. And who knows, maybe we'll have a button or something to give you. So. <laughs> Anyway, so um, please join us next time for episode 34 of Connecting with Walt, in which Craig and I talk with Disney Imagineer and legend Bob Gurr about his career working with Walt Disney and his current projects. Uh, he, and he's also going to be here at the D23 Expo. Mm-hmm. So, Craig, until our next episode, um, where can our listeners find you besides here at D23 Expo? Um, but where can they find you on the Disney Unplugged Podcast Network? Of course, I am... On the Tuesday, Disney World, Disney World edition of the Diz Unplugged. Well, Wednesdays somewhere. Uh, Thursdays on the Universal edition of the Diz Unplugged. Uh, Fridays on Diz Pop. And every day of the week, if you follow me on Twitter, at Teleclaster. And you can find me every Sunday night on the Disney Unplugged podcast, Disneyland edition, with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulatto, Willie, Tony Spital, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all, and all Southern California theme parks. I talk about the Walt Disney Family Museum and even more Disney history. Listen to us live on Mixler Sunday at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland time. You can download our two weekly shows from iTunes each Monday. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland. Check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at www.disunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, I'm at 
M Bowling one two one Facebook. I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram Michael Bowling the Diz. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing: that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>